Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. In late 1976, William Michael Albert Broad, a 21-year-old guitar-playing university dropout, along with John Tao, a West End music shop assistant and drummer, replied to an advert placed in Melody Maker by John Crevine, the owner of a fashion clothing shop called Acme Attractions on the King's Road in Chelsea. Crevine was seeking musicians to form a band for vocalist and frontman John O'Hara, also known as Gene October. Broad suggested bringing in Tony James, a 23-year-old university graduate from Twickenham who had a first-class honours degree in mathematics and computer science and had thrown away a career as a computer programmer to play bass in London SS, a band most famous for including members who went on to found The Clash and The Damned. After a few weeks of rehearsals, the band was christened Chelsea and started playing support gigs in London and Manchester, primarily playing cover versions of rock and roll songs from the 1960s. However, by November, Gene October felt that Broad and James were becoming too dominant creatively and that his personal chemistry with them wasn't good. The feeling was reciprocal. Billy and I had started writing songs and we always had this feeling that Chelsea was a transitory period and that really Billy and I wanted to do a group and that we were going to write songs. I think Billy and I always had a problem relating to Gene October, not only on a musical level but on a personal level as well. And what happened was that we'd written some songs and there was a song called Prove It and we played at the Nashville in um, Earl's Court and we were playing support to a band there. And uh, we came on to do the encore 
and Chelsea didn't have any more numbers and Billy and I said let's go out and do that one of ours and Billy and I came out and did prove it with the drummer without Gene October because obviously he didn't know the words because we hadn't told him we'd written this song and that was the first kind of really of the appearance of Generation X and, and from that moment I think we knew that we needed to go and do our own group. So Broad and James departed taking Tao with them leaving October to find a whole new band which he did and went on to release the singles Right to Work and High Rise Living in 1977 and Urban Kids in 1978, all the while touring and replacing members at a rate of knots. By the end of this tour, the band recorded its self-titled album before splitting up in 1979. None of the singles, nor the album, managed to trouble the charts. In 1982, October reformed Chelsea and continues to release material and tour to this day with ever-changing lineups. But this isn't the story of Chelsea. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of Generation X and Billy Idol. Broad, James and Tao named their new band after a book about 1960s British youth culture, specifically the mod subculture, that James found at Broad's family home. It came from a sort of a, a book in the 60s. It's about what young people thought then, right? You know, their, it was their way of expression in a way, you know, because, you know, it was about the mods and the rockers and stuff like that, about how they had to chain each other and things like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we felt it meant exactly the same for us today, you know, the futility and things, things around us. In Generation X, Broad not only switched from guitarist to lead singer, but also re-monikered himself as Billy Idol. His new name was a play on a description of him made by a teacher at Worthing High School for Boys in West Sussex, but also as a part of a tradition, following in the footsteps of English rock and rollers like Billy Fury. Originally, he wanted to use the word Idol, I-D-L-E, but thought the name would be unavailable due to its similarity to Monty Python star Eric Idol, so chose to spell it I-D-O-L instead. Also, um, it's good fun making fun of show business. I'm not into show business. I'm into rock and roll. To replace him on guitar, the 17-year-old Bob Andrews was recruited after Idol spotted him playing in a band called Paradox. The transition from Chelsea to Generation X, looking back on it, was extraordinarily quick. Now, knowing what I know now, 25 years later, of how incredibly difficult it is to find chemistry, to find greatness to yes. find stars it was clearly meant to be so from that day that we left chelsea we'd written over the next few weeks we'd written your generation ready steady go in fact no we wrote ready steady go in chelsea because it was about the chelsea scene um we'd written six or seven songs we found a guitarist within two weeks when we left you know billy right. went to a party at a youth club in fulham and he phoned me up, not on a mobile phone, obviously, in those days. <laughs> yeah. Phoned me up from a call box and he said, I'm at this party, there's a kid playing guitar here. He's great. We've got to get him. He's going to need a haircut. Right. <laughs> but he's the guy. And it yeah. was like magical. And within a week, this 17-year-old kid had cut his hair and he was in the band. James almost immediately began asking Andrews and his friends about his nicknames at school in a search for a stage name for the boringly named Bob. One of these nicknames included Dobbin, on account of his prominent front teeth. To spare him his blushes and being stuck with such a degrading nickname forevermore, a friend of Andrew's made up the name Durwood, 
which seemed to hit the right spot with James. After less than a week and only a handful of rehearsals, Generation X took to the stage for its first gig at the Central London College of Art and Design on the 10th of December 1976. Just four days later, the band was the very first to play at the newly opened club The Roxy, which was managed by Generation X's manager, Andrew Sosovsky. Soon after this, the band began writing its own material, with Idol writing music around James's lyrics. Soon after this, the Roxy really took off, becoming a hub for London's punk rock scene, with bands such as Susie and the Banshees, Chelsea, Buzzcocks, Sham 69, The Clash, Coxsparrow, The Jam, The Slits, Subway Sect, The Stranglers, The Police, X-Ray Specs, The Vibrators and XTC, among many others, playing there within its first 100 days. A lot of these sets were recorded by resident DJ Don Letts, who was instrumental in introducing reggae to the punk scene, which influenced the birth of Two-Tone later. These sets have found their way onto albums over the years, as well as films like the punk rock movie shot by Letts himself, and The Clash, New Year's Day 77, which was shot by Julian Temple and only found its way onto BBC4 in 2015. Sadly, as the punk movement fizzled out, the Roxy closed its doors for good in 1978. The site at 41-43 Neal Street in Covent Garden is now the flagship store for the swimwear brand Speedo, but the building got a blue plaque in 2017 commemorating the legendary status of the club. Back in 1977, and because of the explosion in popularity of the club, Sizovsky handed management responsibilities of Generation X over to Stuart Joseph, a fanzine promoter from Rough Trade Records, along with sounds journalist John Ingram, who did a lot to professionalise the act business aspect, and began approaching record companies to secure them a record deal. On the 16th of February 1977, the band went into a studio for the first time to record five songs at Delane Lee Studios in Wembley, sponsored by Chiswick Records. The lyrics of some of these songs have a politicised tone, critiquing the National Front and the conflict in Ulster. The band would abandon writing political songs soon after this. Although they were a punk band, they were inspired by mid-1960s pop, in sharp contrast to their more militant peers. Idlers said, we were saying the opposite to The Clash and The Pistols. They were saying no Elvis, Beatles or The Rolling Stones. But we were honest about what we liked. The truth was, we were all building our music on The Beatles and The Stones. Later that year, Generation X's first single from that session was released. Your Generation was a 7-inch, unmarked white label release, with the song Listen as the B-side. 250 copies were initially pressed, followed by another 500 copies when these sold out. In April, having just played their first international date in Paris alongside the upcoming bands The Jam and The Police, and recording their first live radio session at the BBC's Maida Vale Studios, Tao was asked to leave the band by James and Idol. They felt that his style of playing was too overt for what they wanted from a drummer and James had come to find Tao's personality no longer fit with the image that he was shaping for the band. Tao moved on to join a new outfit called Alternative TV, or ATV, who came to prominence just after he left them to join another unremarkable band called The Rage. Tao was replaced on drums in Generation X by the 18-year-old Mark Laff from North Finchley, 
who was recruited in May, from Subway Sect, who had been supporting The Clash, Sex Pistols and Susie and the Banshees. From June to August 1977, in between gigs, the band practised in a rehearsal space in the basement beneath the Beggar's Banquet record shop on the Fulham Road. Laff, real name Mark Red Lafferley, completed the classic Generation X lineup. In mid-July, Generation X signed a recording contract with Chrysalis Records and went into Wessex Sound Studios in North London to record its first promotional single. The band was unhappy with the results of the initial session under producer Bill Price, so Chrysalis sought another producer, Phil Wayman, at Morgan Studios in Willesden. Here they recorded Generation X's first single, Your Generation. Well, I mean, the only single we made in the minutes, Your Generation. And uh, I was just talking about what you know, rock music I like in the, you know, in the past, really. And Your Generation, it, it's not, you know, it's really about how, you know, for like the last six years, right, there hasn't been anything which we felt had this, the type of emotion and rawness, right? which makes rock and roll mean something for people for years and years, you know, which really speaks to them. So we feel like we've got all these great influences from the 60s, you know, like I think the Beatles, the Who, the Kinks, and then there's a lot of American people, you know, like uh, Stooges and stuff, all that stuff. Even like the old rock and roll, like Gene Vincent, right? We've got all those influences that show you what's, what's right about rock and roll, right? And now we want to go on, take the next step, and push rock and roll another step further, right? You know, still, still encapsulate all that's gone before, but move on. That's what your generation's about. It's not about hating all the old people just because they've gone off with a lot of money. I mean, like, that's, that's true, but it's more important that rock and roll music's great again for me. I want to walk down the street, you know, and every discotheque you go by or every shop, it's rock and roll pouring out, you know. So that's what it's about. It's just about wanting to make a next step, right? and just saying what's happened in the past six years and wanting to move on, you know. Mm. And whatever it takes, it might take violence, you know, it might take uh, hatred, it might take a love again, I don't know, but we're going to, like, try and find out, try and push yeah. it on, you know. Wayneman wasn't impressed with the musical ability of the band, particularly with Laugh's technical ability or Idol's capacity as a singer. At one point, Idol asked for Wayneman's opinion on whether he thought Generation X were going to make it. Wayneman said he doubted it. On release, despite being critiqued by Elton John in a review in the Record Mirror as dreadful garbage, at the start of September, the single went to number 36 in the UK singles chart. That week, the band played the song on Mark Boland's afternoon variety show at Granada Television in Manchester. This is a new group called uh, Generation X. They have a lead singer called Billy Idol, who's supposed to be as pretty as me. We'll see now. Generation X. The studio provided instruments for the performance, which was a mistake, as afterwards the band made off with the drum kit. Generation X was subsequently banned by Granada for 10 years. Along with writing and performing the band's musical output, James and Idol sought to extend the band's brand identity beyond the music by designing and manufacturing a series of op-art and pop-art t-shirts for use in photo shoots and live performances. Co-manager John Ingham introduced them to the graphic artist Barney Bubbles, who had worked on album art for Hawkwind, Reckless Eric, Elvis Costello, Ian Jury and The Damned. Bubbles collaborated with Generation X on the cover for the Your Generation single, drawing inspiration from the 1920s abstract geometric work of Russian designer L. Lysitsky, which introduced the Russian constructivist school into English pop music design. 
Bubbles was also commissioned by the band to design its newspaper adverts and posters. Also in September, Generation X was one of the first punk bands to appear on top of the pops and began to acquire some mass media recognition as a punk act that had an accessibility of sound and image with the potential to achieve pop success. This analysis led to criticism in the alternative music media, with a number of reviewers dismissing Generation X as artistically and intellectually vapid and suggesting the band was cynically using the punk movement as a stepping stone to pursue pop fame and fortune. As punk rock developed an increasingly radical overtone, driven partly by the politicised contents of bands like The Clash, Generation X also faced accusations of being middle-class interlopers upon a working-class subculture movement. Evidence for this consisted of a story circulating the scene from music journalist Tony Parsons of the New Musical Express. He said that when Idol and James had turned up to a pub for an interview with him, he asked what they wanted to drink. They requested orange juices and had openly criticised and rejected on an intellectual basis the hedonism of the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. The interview had been conducted shortly after the band's formation, and James and Idol, particularly Idol, had since moved some way from this stance as they moved through the social circles of London's music scene. But the initial impression from it lingered in the British punk rock movement. Generation X stood out in the burgeoning punk scene for its combination of the raw, raucous energy of punk rock with a more commercially melodic sound and visual image in the tradition of earlier British pop music styles of the 1960s, drawing influences from bands such as The Who, The Kinks, The Small Faces and The Beatles. They also produced songs that lyrically focused on the concerns of being an adolescent in West London in the late 1970s and, apart from playing a few gigs in support of Rock Against Racism, eschewed the social commentary, cultural nihilism and radical politics of the punk movement. In late September, early October 77, the band spent several days recording demo sessions overseen by Wayneman again at Utopia Studios in Primrose Hill in preparation for its first long player release. In mid-November, the band released the single Wild Youth, written on the spur of the moment during a publicity photo shoot with photographer Ray Stevenson in London's West End, inspired by some street graffiti. Well, the new one's called Wild Youth, and it's really... Like, I feel it's just about talking about me personally, right? But it's like, it's, it's trying to find the identity of today, you know what I mean? What being alive in the 70s is about, you know? How you've got the same pressures from authority and stuff, but we're fighting it so we can, you know, be ourselves, do what we want, do what we think. That's uh, yeah, about, you know? People always tell you you can't do what you want, you've got to do what everybody else wants you to do. It's just uh, about that, trying to... 70s has had no real identity, right? It's always been trading on what's happened in the past. And even punk rock started out like that, trading on the music a little bit of the past, you know? But the thing is, like I was saying about your generation, we've absorbed those influences, and now we're trying to find the music of today. And so, wild youth, I feel, is like, we can now approach the 70s with a new feeling, because people today have revitalised what was great about old things, but put the spirit of today in it. And Wild Youth's just about that. It's about what we feel today about being young. You know, what things turn us on. And, you know, there's still a big fight going on, but you know, it's still great. You can make things great today if you want them to be great. Despite its catchy chorus complete with claps, Wild Youth was Generation X's only single that failed to enter the UK singles chart. 
The cover art comprised individual colorized rotoscoped portraits of the band members taken by the photographer Peter Kodik Gravel, who had photographed the result of a food fight for the cover of The Damned's first album and later served Sid Vicious with heroin on the night that he overdosed. The single also included an experimental B-side entitled Wild Dub, attempting an early fusion, before the subsequent two-tone movement, of the ska music of the West and South London Afro-Caribbean immigrant communities with Generation X's punk pop sound. This followed on the coattails of The Clash's foray into the same area a few months earlier with their cover of the song Police and Thieves. Towards the end of 1977, John Ingham resigned from co-managing Generation X and moved to the USA after having come into conflict with James, leaving Stuart Joseph in sole charge of the band's affairs. In February 1978, the single Ready Steady Go was released, with cover art taken from the design of one of the band's self-produced t-shirts, but it failed to enter the top 40 of the UK singles chart, peaking at number 47. Ready Steady Go is lyrically about being infatuated with Kathy McGowan, the presenter of the 60s rock TV show Ready Steady Go, which showcased bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who also get name checks as objects of idols' affections. The band kept a hectic touring schedule throughout the UK through 1978, which included one gig in Derby, where Hell's Angel climbed on stage and punched Idol in the face, hard enough that Idol flew backwards into the drum kit. He got back onto his feet, dusted himself down and resumed the band's performance as if nothing had happened. In March, the band's first album was released, entitled Generation X. However, Ready Steady Go was to be the only single released from it. After being dissatisfied with Wayman's poppy production on the previous singles, and to give the album a sound more indicative of the band's harder live sound, Martin Rushant was sought in as producer and Alan Wynne Stanley as engineer at TW Studios in Fulham. Both had previously worked with The Stranglers and had come to the attention of Idol through this work. The album was recorded in one week, with many of the songs being completed in just one take. James wrote most of the lyrics, Idol composed the music with Andrews and Laugh adding their own instrumental parts. Often I'd write a lyric and give you a lyric or a bit of a lyric and then you'd sort yeah. of work on the music, tune and the melody and the chords and all yeah. that, I did the music. Yeah. <laughs> Tone wrote the lyrics. It seemed easy in most those days. You know what I mean, I used to go into my grand's house and go, oh, we need a new song and I'd go to my grand's house and sort of sit there in the front room and just write a song and then bring it over to you, handwritten or typed out on my old mum's typewriter right. with carbon paper so you'd have a copy. Right. Yeah. You'd have a copy, <laughs> right? And then he'd come in the next day, you know, with, yeah. with it written. Some kind of, yeah, some idea. Or... That's right. James told Zigzag magazine in an interview in April 1978, it was like recording in a garage. It was such a shithole. But it was great as we felt completely at home. We just plugged in and played great and it sounded great. Youth 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 was done in one take. We just set Derwood up with a wall of speakers in the studio, no headphones, and just left the tape running. We were pissed and did it at midnight. That's the only way we could possibly have recorded that track. He just went mad and we all just sat there in awe as he went crazy playing that solo. 
The album eventually peaked at number 29 in the UK Albums Chart. Also in April, The Enemy ran a cover story with Generation X, a two-page centre-spread article, the photos for which had been taken by Penny Smith and displayed Idol and James, without Andrews and Laugh, which gave rise to talk that there was some sort of divide brewing within the band. Generation X kept up their high work rate of live performances as the year developed, with Idol also going on a promotional visit for the band to the United States in May 1978, followed by another gig in Paris in June, several live BBC radio performances and being supported for several dates in November and December by an up-and-coming band from West Sussex called The Cure. In October, Generation X went into Wessex Sound Studios in Islington to record their second album, Valley of the Dolls, which saw them moving to a more mainstream rock sound in a bid to expand their appeal in America and move from playing small clubs to much bigger venues. The band began incorporating aspects of early 70s glam, punk and prog rock into its sound and look, along with some Bruce Springsteen-esque songwriting techniques. This change was mainly down to the album's producer, Ian Hunter, the lead singer of Mott the Hoople, who was chosen by James solely because he was a massive fan. He was great. Best yeah. thing he did was when we, we he, he turned up from New York on the plane on a Friday night and he met us and, he, and he'd listened to all the tracks we'd written for Valley of the Dolls. Do you remember? And he went, oh, it's great, he went, but I'm not hearing a single. And we went, oh. And he went, have you got anything else? And we went, oh, well, we could. Maybe. And we went home that night and we wrote King Rocker that night. Oh, right, yeah. And brought in the next day and we went, look, we've written this one, we'll just do. And he went, oh, well, that's a hit. <laughs> there you go. We're still it, doing that as well. Isn't it well. easy? Well, not easy <laughs> I'm then. still doing that as well. Because <laughs> you didn't have that pressure of thinking it. Nine million to... years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. That's a good one to do. It was fun, yeah, it's easy. Yeah. It's fun to... You know, it was just about... a an idea of a battle between Elvis and, and John, Lennon John Lennon of who could be the best rock and roller. <laughs> Hunter became the second producer in his many years to raise concerns about the technical competence of Laugh's drumming and employed ex-Jethro Tull drummer Clive Bunker as a session musician. In 1979, the band with its manager Stuart Joseph was called into the offices of Chrysalis Records where they were told in no uncertain terms that the label was unhappy and that the money it had invested into the act since 1977 was not being reflected in its chart success. If the next single, King Rocker, wasn't a hit, Generation X would be dropped. After the meeting, Joseph announced a cut in the band members' weekly wages to force them to work harder. In any event, King Rocker became the band's commercial career high point, reaching number 11 in the UK singles chart, assisted by being issued in a variety of different coloured discs designed by Barney Bubbles, with distinctive cover art which required multiple purchases of the single to complete the set. However, the Valley of the Dolls album reached just number 51 in the UK albums chart. It received a critical mauling in the music press, with reviewers slating it as overblown and artistically hollow. This shook Idol's confidence in James's judgement, given that the record had been personally dominated by James's ideas throughout its production. The situation wasn't improved by Generation X being driven off stage by an onslaught of missiles from a mob of UK subs fans during a Triple Bill concert at the Lyceum Ballroom in London in February. This was part of an ongoing violent tendency from a proto-street punk element that dogged the band's live appearances. 
In another performance at the University of Leicester, the band had to evacuate the stage mid-set as Durwood was hit in the face with a bottle. The perceived commercial failures continued with the singles Valley of the Dolls peaking at number 23 in March and Friday's Angels languishing at number 62 in June. In a later interview with the NME, James said of the record's failure, I was in love with the rock and roll myth. I'd read Mick Farron's novel The Tale of Willie's Rats and I thought it was wonderful. I certainly had a romantic vision of rock and roll groups and I think with the Valley of the Dolls album we reached an all-time bottom in that rock and roll romanticism. After the album came out I realised that I'd been talking about things that I didn't really understand or which even were just not true. Afterwards we realised we had to sing about what we knew about, not what we wish we were. Differences began to surface within the band, centering around Andrews and Idol. Andrews hated Idol's changing character caused by Idol's increasingly severe narcotics use. He also got the impression that Idol was eyeing a solo career, as he was beginning to create a performance persona, based on elements from Gary Glitter, Elvis Presley and Billy Fury. Rifts were also appearing with regards to the band's musical direction after the commercial failure of the Valley of the Dolls album. Andrews wanted to move in the direction of the emerging indie rock sound after being impressed by the recent work of the critically acclaimed Joy Division and wanted more of an involvement in the band's songwriting. Idle and James were drawn in a more mainstream and apparently commercial dance punk direction and began flirting with the idea of incorporating elements of shock rock into the band's act, refusing to allow Andrews' material into their songwriting partnership. These internal disagreements, complicated further by the band's manager Stuart Joseph resigning, came to a head towards the end of 1979, after the band returned from its first international tour of Japan. During recording sessions just before Christmas at Olympic Studio in Barnes for what would have been Generation X's third album, Andrews quit. Generation X's last live performance had been at Totnes Civil Hall on the 28th of November 1979. Andrews would go on to remix and release this abortive third album 19 years later in the face of opposition from Idol. Now, Sweet Revenge was the third Generation X album which was recorded with the original lineup mm. with me, Billy Idol, Durwood and Mark Laff. And we recorded it in Olympic Studios. There's about 10 tracks. It was 90% finished when Durwood announced he was leaving the group, that he'd go on the Japan tour with us, but that he wanted to go off and write his own songs and for various other reasons like people do. Um, and in the end, it, it meant him and Mark left, left the group before that album ever got finished. Yeah. So although there's terrific material there, Billy and I took three or four of the songs on, because obviously we wrote all those songs, and we recorded them as Gen X when we shortened the name, which yeah. later came out as the Kiss Me Deadly album. So there's a whole album called Sweet Revenge that's never, ever been released apart from bootleg. Following this, Andrew and Laff recorded as session musicians on Jimmy Percy's first solo album, Imagination Camouflage, after he left Sham 69 in 1980. Also, Andrews and Laff with Simon Bernal on bass formed a three-man post-punk band called Empire, 
with Andrews as the act's lead vocalist. In 1981, Empire released the song Hot Seat via Dinosaur Discs, a label set up by a record shop of the same name in West Kensington, with a B-side entitled All These Things, which failed to enter the UK singles chart. An album entitled Expensive Sound, recorded with a producer at Alvik Studio in Barons Court, also failed to enter the UK album chart. The band played a handful of gigs around London before Bernal left. After an unstable lineup and more gigging in 1981 and 82, Laff left in February 1983 in frustration with its lack of apparent commercial development. Andrews then renamed the act New Empire after recruiting vocalist Babel Wallace, bassist Mike Gregovich, one of the sound engineers at Alvik Studios who had recorded expensive sound, and Crispin Taylor on drums. The new lineup released a white label 12 inch titled Inside You and toured in the UK in support of John Miles and Roman Holiday. New Empire found some unanticipated popularity in Spain, where shows were well attended. However, without the support of a record label, its increasingly adverse financial circumstances led to Andrews calling it a day in February 1984 at a gig in the Thames Hall in Slough, signalling defeat by wrecking his amp with his guitar in the band's final performance. Despite its lack of commercial success, Empire was influential in the development of the emo music genre in the US, and John Squire acknowledged influence of new Empire songs such as Him or Me on the development of the sound of the Stone Roses in the late 1980s. Johnny Marr of The Smiths has also named Andrews as an inspiration. In 1985, Laugh founded a retro rock and roll band called 20 Flight Rockers with Gary Twin on vocals after he moved back to the UK from Australia, where he had tasted fleeting success in a band called Supernaut, which boasted Paul McCartney as a fan. 20 Flight Rockers released the single Tower Block Rock in 1985 via ABC Records and another single entitled Johnny Seven on WEA Records in 1986, neither of which made an impact on the charts. In March 1986, the band released the song Searching for a Hero on a compilation cassette advertising new bands entitled Spools Gold, given away free with the record mirror. Bernie Rhodes, who Laugh knew well from his early days with Subway Sect, was hired to manage them and arrange the band's signing with major label Epic Records. 20 Flight Rockers recorded a series of sessions and a self-produced studio album entitled Ride, which was scheduled for release in 1988. However, that year Epic Records was bought out by Sony, which subsequently dropped the band, leading to their breakup. The Ride album would not see the light of day until 2001 when it was put out by Revel Yell Music as a retrospective release under the title 20 Flight Rockers. In 2004, Revel Yell released a second retrospective album from the band entitled The New York Sessions 1988. With Andrews and Laugh gone, Idle and James recruited Terry Chimes as a replacement drummer, another former SS alumni, and a founding member of The Clash. Chimes had also drummed for Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers and Cowboys International. James found a manager for the new lineup in the form of Bill Orcoin, 
who managed the iconic glam metal band KISS. However, after assessing the act's potential, Orcoin became more interested in the commercial possibilities of Idol as a solo artist in the American marketplace than the band as a whole, and began making moves behind the scene to split Idol from the band. This new lineup renamed itself Gen X and styled itself as a new romantic band with a neo-Victorian gothic look, influenced by Idol's interest in the writings of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In early 1980, Gen X went into Eel Pie Studios in Soho with lead guitarist Steve New, who had previously auditioned for the Sex Pistols and played with Glenn Matlock's post-Pistols band The Rich Kids. They recorded a demo session of material which included an extended experimental noise rock instrumental entitled Taxi Driver Parts 1 and 2, shadowing the sound of Public Image Limited's recently released Metal Box LP. Steve New would have ultimately been in Generation X and he, it is actually Steve New playing guitar on the Dancing With Myself single. He's playing Durwood's Lick and he plays it brilliantly and he plays the guitar solo as well. But to be honest, Steve New was having fairly, and I'm sure he admits it himself, fairly serious drug problems, as were other members of the Entourage. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was all... The Generation X Kiss Me Deadly was unfortunately recorded in a fairly major methadone haze. Steve News' yeah. catchphrase was, how does this one go? And we go, Steve, we showed it to you yesterday. Was, <laughs> oh. I, was I here yesterday? <laughs> yes, you were, Steve. <laughs> I've got all loads of tapes of us rehearsing with Steve. He spent one night, he came to a rehearsal, and it he, 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 he was like three hours late, and he'd spent the whole night, he'd not dropped his gear on the number 11 bus, oh. and he was getting on every number 11, oh. go, looking, looking oh. for it at the back of the bus, hoping he'd find the right number yeah. 11 and find it yeah because he never his drugs you know. yeah not, not his, his gear, gear meaning his amp and no, guitar it's, it's, uh, yeah his drugs yeah, his drug, <laughs> if it was guitar and that would be like oh never <laughs> <Yeah>. mind <laughs> no, it's just, it was his drugs yeah yeah yeah, but he was such a magical player yeah. because he was so out there. He was like a Sid Barrett type character. Wasn't yeah, he? he looked great. He looked great. Fantastic, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, we did some great stuff with him. You know, when we when we recorded Dance Myself, he sort of we ran the tape. Do you remember, he was already playing, and they ran the tape, and he sort of got in time with it, played the track, and then the track finished, and yeah. he was still playing. Yeah, surrounded yeah. in a big big circle of amplifiers yeah. and stuff. That must was... have been tough on Keith Horsley, trying yeah. to keep hold of you, you two and Steve New. Right, yeah, true. <laughs> well, he was no angel either, was he? No, no, not completely. No, Keith was a bit of a wild man in his own way, yeah. so we're all Everyone tripping was the life fantastic back then. <laughs> insane asylum. Yes, yeah. yes. And for me, who's a person who doesn't do hot drugs, it was pretty nightmarish. You know, not as nightmarish as playing with the Heartbreakers a few months later, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. But um, yeah. at that time, it was fairly nightmarish having everyone dependent on something else, you know. But it was a great record, the, the Generation X record. But really, drugs destroyed us. And uh, also, drugs change your perception of friendships and your ambition. In mid-1980, Gen X went into Air Studios in Oxford Street to re-record some of the material from the Olympic studio sessions and several new songs for their next album. Chrysalis Records had unsurprisingly shown reluctance to fund it after the commercial failure of Valley of the Dolls and the fact that the last time it had shelled out money for Generation X to record, half the band had quit or been fired. 
To secure financing, Idol, under the influence of Orcoin, entered into discussions with the label on the option of a potential solo career, signing to it beyond the band's existence. Also involved in the recording sessions, along with Steve New, was a selection of some of the best lead guitarists in London's post-punk scene that were now looking for new bands to team up with. John McGeo from Magazine and Visage, Steve Jones from The Sex Pistols and The Professionals, and Danny Custow from the Tom Robinson band The Spectres and The Planets, all acted as session musicians in what were essentially auditions. In 1981, an album produced by Keith Forsey was released entitled Kiss Me Deadly, the production of the new record had been problematic. James later described narcotic use by other members of the lineup, including Idol, during the recording sessions as hampering it, and his personal working relationship with Idol was becoming distanced by his unease at Idol's intensifying attraction to opiates. This distancing was exacerbated by Idol's increasing self-sufficiency in songwriting, a wearying of James's company due to what Idol perceived as an uptight and intense demeanour that had developed in James's personality, and the increasing allure of the prospect of a solo career. On top of this, James had got on badly with Keith Forsey, with whom Idol had established a rapport and was eager to work with again. The record itself, despite the innovation of its sound as part of the new wave movement and its display of Idol's and James's maturing talent as songwriters, failed to chart. Regardless of a brief low-key promotional tour between November 1980 and January 1981, with James Stevenson now as a permanent fixture on guitar. A lacklustre pre-release in October 1980 of the song Dancing With Myself, backed by a B-side of a Rocksteady-esque dub song entitled Ugly Rash, certainly wasn't helped by the stark portrait of Idol's face, with an inappropriate-looking child model crudely pasted onto the right-hand side of the cover and Gen X printed up the left-hand side. The single only reached number 62 in the UK singles charts. A hodgepodge EP entitled Gen X 4, containing Generation X and Gen X material, was also released in January to little effect. Critical reviews of the new album in the music press were also generally indifferent or hostile, with Smash Hits magazine giving it 2 out of 10. Consequently, after receiving notification from Orcoin that Idol was now willing to abandon the band, Chrysalis Records wrote off the quarter of a million pounds it had invested into the act's development over four years. Gen X broke up in February 1981, its last performance having been a gig at the Paris Theatre in London on the 7th of January. At the end of Gen X, we'd brought in Bill Coin to manage us. My idea, I have to say. I'd read an article about Kiss and I'd read the Kiss book and I thought I liked the idea of someone who had television visionary yeah. understanding, something I exploited later in Sputnik. But yeah. I brought in Bill Coin to manage Generation X, I thought it was incredibly creative and really great. And the problem was he wanted us to relocate to New York and I didn't want to go and live in New York. And so Billy just upped and went <laughs> and then it was over. <laughs> Orcoin advised Idol to relocate from London to New York with a solo artist contract from Chrysalis Records to start anew in the US. He took a remixed version of Dancing With Myself as a calling card. This version had the guitars dropped down in the mix and the bass and vocals boosted. Idol, with his lip-curling sneer and fist-pumping persona, was about to become one of the most commercially successful pop-rock stars to come out of the 1970s UK punk-rock movement, 
as well as one of MTV's first megastars. James went on to write Russian Roulette by Lords of the New Church, a punk supergroup featuring members of The Damned, Sham 69, The Dead Boys and The Barracudas. He also played on the London Cowboys debut album Animal Pleasure and produced Song and Legend, the debut album by post-punkers Sex Gang Children. In 1984, he formed the new wave act Zig Zig Sputnik, which went on to have chart success until the end of the 80s. He also played bass in the Sisters of Mercy on their final album, Vision Thing, and the accompanying tour in 1990. Great tomorrow's lying way. From 2002 to 2013, James worked with Mick Jones, his erstwhile associate from London SS, in an act called Carbon Silicon, with James co-writing songs and playing guitar. This band was described by critic Alan McGee as the Stones jamming with a laptop, as they initially made extensive use of samples in their recordings and live shows. Carbon Silicon initially gave away all their music for free on their website, but from sometime in 2010, the albums were removed and released commercially on iTunes and Amazon Music. As the sun will always rise, cause along comes another one. And life's a big surprise. In 1986, after the breakup of Gen X, Andrews formed a retro 1950s Americana-style rockabilly band called Westworld with the singer Elizabeth Westwood. It scored a hit with its debut single Sonic Boom Boy, which reached number 11 in the UK singles chart in February 1987. The song was subsequently used by Sony on one of its TV advertising campaigns. Between 1987 and 88, Westworld released five singles in the UK via RCA, all of which entered the top 80, and an album called Where the Action Is, which reached number 49 in the album chart. Three more singles were released between 1989 and 1992, but they failed to enter the charts. Two albums released in the US also failed to chart, and the act broke up later that year. Andrews moved to the States, where he continued to work with Westwood, forming an act named Moondog, with the sound artist Martin Lee Stevenson in 1994. In 96, he returned to London to set up a supergroup called Dead Horse, consisting of ex-Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock, the Dam's Rat Scabies and Gary Twin, who had been in various punk and rockabilly bands. 
but the band failed to develop beyond some rehearsals and a demo recording session after Matlock abandoned it to reform the Sex Pistols for the Filthy Lucre tour. Andrews and Twin then formed an alternative country act entitled Speed Twin, combining British rock music from the 1970s with American country music. Andrews and Twin both relocated to Joshua Tree, California in 1998 and gigged in small venues around the area. As well as recording music videos for their cover songs which ranged from T-Rex to Johnny Cash, they wrote and released a self-produced album entitled California in 2003 which also failed to enter the US charts. Speed Twin disbanded soon afterwards. Since 2007, Andrews has been releasing solo albums entitled Tone Poet in volumes from 1 to 4. One is an experimental rock album, but from volume 2 through to 4, which was released in early 2018, Andrews adopted a more country blues inspired sound. A retrospective album of material from Westworld recorded between 92 and 94 entitled Sick Cool was released in the US in 2018. In 2006, Andrews and Laffrey recorded the Empire single Hot Seat for the 25th anniversary of the Expensive Sound album. In 2011, Andrews played again with New Empire's ex-singer Babel Wallace for the recording of a song called Bedhead for Wallace's solo album Good Things Can Happen. Laff retired from professional music in 2004 and went into business as the director of a holistic lifestyle therapy company in Brighton. However, he briefly reunited with Vic Goddard of Subway Sect in 2007 to re-record the band's previously unreleased debut album under the title 1978 Now. The original lineup of the band had all been sacked in mysterious circumstances except Goddard by the band's manager and label owner Bernie Rhodes in 1978 before recording had been completed. Why did you go to the States? I mean, how did you come to We Settle Over There? Well, once Generation X broke up, it, it didn't seem much uh, use just hanging around being a, somebody who was a bit of a has-been. seemed a lot better to go somewhere else where, as far as I knew, I was a complete non-entity and start again, and that's what I did. Idol moved to New York City in 1981 to begin his solo career. His punk-like image worked well with the glam rock style of his new partner on guitar, Steve Stevens. Together they worked with bassist Phil Feet and drummer Greg Gershon. Idol's solo career began with an EP titled Don't Stop in 1981, which included Dancing With Myself and a cover of Tommy James and the Shondells song Moni Moni, as well as a new song written by Idol, Baby Talk, and Untouchables, another Gen X song from Kiss Me Deadly that was re-recorded for this EP. It was also a reunion with producer Keith Forsey. Don't Stop reached number 71 on the Billboard 200, generating significant anticipation for his debut solo album. Yeah, yeah.
The eponymous album Billy Idol was released on the 16th of July 1982 and reached number 45 in the US but failed to chart in the UK. The music on the album still had strong roots in rock but with a much more mainstream new wave sound. Three singles were released from the album. The remix Dancing With Myself had already been released in 1981, reaching number 27 in the US Billboard Hot Dance Club Party Chart, and 102 on the bubbling under Hot 100 singles. It was later released in 1983 in New Zealand and Canada, where it reached numbers 9 and 39 in their respective charts. This version of the song had a music video made for use on the newly launched MTV. Directed by Toby Hooper, the director of such films as Salem's Lot, Poltergeist and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it stars Idol in a scenario drawn from the 1971 film The Amiga Man, in which he plays a lone figure in a post-apocalyptic cityscape, besieged upon a skyscraper rooftop by partying mutants. The lead single from the album was Hot in the City, released on the 27th of May 1982. It peaked at number 23 on the Billboard 100 and provided him with his first solo single to chart in the UK at number 58, though a re-release in 1987 ended up peaking at number 13. However, more was to come with the release of White Wedding Part 1, which peaked at number 3 on the mainstream rock chart and number 23 on the top 100 in 1983. The single features the less heard White Wedding Part 2, which is a synthesizer-based continuation of the first part. It can also be heard on the compilation Vital Idol. The video for White Wedding was easily one of his best known, and features Idol attending a goth wedding. The Bride is played by Perry Lister, Idol's real-life girlfriend since 1980. Lister was a former dancer in the troupe Hot Gossip, as well as a member of the Blitz Kids, a group of flamboyantly dressed people who frequented the elitist Covent Garden Club night Blitz in the early 1980s. These included Boy George, Steve Strange, Spandau Ballet and Marilyn. Lister also appears in the videos for Fade to Grey by Visage and The Chauffeur by Duran Duran, as well as Idol's Hot in the City. In one scene in the White Wedding video, Idol forces a wedding ring made of barbed wire onto Lister's finger and cuts her knuckle. Lister insisted that her knuckle actually be cut in order for the scene to appear more realistic. MTV initially removed this scene from the video. Another controversial part of the video were the apparent Nazi salutes made by the crowd towards the couple. Director David Mallett, who had previously made videos for Queen, Blondie, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie and The Boomtown Rats, among others, says he was merely playing with the power of crowd imagery when he had the extras reach towards the bride and did not realise how it looked until after it was finished. White Wedding portrays a pretty horrible view of marriage. Is that based on personal experience? No, I, I was never married, but um, no, the song's about my sister. 
Yeah. And um, well, really, it's nothing to do with marriage, really. Let's face it, it's about kind of conventions in, in society that people kind of use hypocritically just to, um, <laughs> for their own ends, really. Basically, it's not really horrible at all. In fact, um, everyone always talks about how the satanic side of it and all that stuff with all those crosses, but they don't realise the cross is a symbol of life. And young people these days have got more life than ever. And I think that's what this music's all about. And uh, they don't see the horror visions in that. They see the truth. To them, that's not horrible at all. It's real. To me, it's not horrible. It's, it's nice. I think that's the truth. I love women. She don't want slavery. She wants to see them back. In fact, really, it's about me coming to the new world and uh, a time when I was real down and out. And the new world took me in. She don't like slavery. She wants to sit and beg. But when I was tired and lonely, she gave me a bed. That's the United States of America. And people find it very easy in um, some of some places to put the United States down. But they forget there's a lot of working class people, ordinary people who struggle every day and have nothing to do with the ruling class. And it's, uh, I find there's a lot of prejudice against those people. And people should cut it out and get into it. Just uh, hate Reagan, but don't hate the other people, you know. Or hate politics, but don't hate ordinary people just because their nationality, their colour, their race or their creed. I mean, it's a waste of time. That's, punk rock was about getting rid of all that. I wanted to stop all that silly rock star nonsense. Nonsense which our world don't need anymore. Of the many bands that have covered this song, the most successful one to date has been by US horror punk band Murder Dolls, a supergroup of sorts featuring Slipknot's former drummer Joey Jordison on guitar. Their version reached number 24 in the UK singles chart in 2003. Idol, Stevens and Forsey returned to the studio, this time Electric Lady Studios in New York, with a vastly increased number of production staff as well as musicians to record a second album, Rebel Yell. Idol had been at a party with the Rolling Stones, where everyone was drinking Rebel Yell bourbon and he thought that would be a great name for an album. The album was a major success, both with critics and the public, establishing him in the US, where it eventually reached number six in the US Billboard Top 200. It also brought him to wider attention in countries like New Zealand, Germany and Canada, where the album broke into the top 10 upon its release on the 10th of November 1983. However, it only reached number 36 in the UK. The recording wasn't all plain sailing though. Idol was battling Chrysalis Records over creative control of the album and decided to steal the master tapes. After the company gave in to his demands, Idol returned to the studio victorious, where Forsey pointed out to him that he'd actually taken the wrong tapes. The lead single from the album was the song of the same name. Rebel Yell was released on the 24th of October 1983, reaching the top 10 in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the US Billboard Top Rock tracks, but only 46 in the Billboard Top 100 and just number 62 in the UK. 
though it eventually reached number six when it was re-released in 1985. You can certainly see why the album did better than its predecessor, not just because of the wider knowledge of Idol's brand, but the production is much better. This song in particular as an album opener really lays out the intent for the record. It plays with light and shade much more deftly and intricately, with certain instruments coming in and out of the mix in exactly the right places. It's got a driving rhythm section running through it and is full of delicious guitar licks and synth lines. Personally, I never get bored of listening to it. Many bands have covered this song over the years, mainly rock bands like Him, Dope, Drowning Pool and Black Veil Brides. But the strangest of them all, and perversely the one that charted in more countries than the original, was a version released on the 9th of May 1996 by German happy hardcore act Scooter. The second single, Eyes Without a Face, which is the English translation of the title of Georges Franju's 1960 French language film Les Yeux Sans Visage, was released on the 29th of May 1984. The song is softer and more ballad-like than most of the album's other singles. Eyes Without a Face reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100, Idol's first top 10 hit in the USA. The song also features the voice of Lister, who sings backing vocals during the chorus. The video was also directed by David Mallet. Set in a hellish netherworld, it begins with a shot of Idol's seemingly disembodied face, illuminated by flames and floating out of the dark towards the viewer. The second verse sees Idol suffering from a violent fit while lying on his back and partially obscured in a shroud of white smoke. During the song's bridge, the scene changes to Steve Stevens soloing on guitar while Idol poses dancing in a flaming hexagon surrounded by hooded figures. The video was shot over three days on a set with fog machines, lighting and fire sources. Immediately after the shoot, Idol flew to perform in Arizona, where he discovered that his contact lenses had fused to his eyeballs attributing it to the combination of the harsh video shoot and the dry air in the plane. He was taken to a hospital where the lenses were removed and his eyes bandaged for three days as his scraped corneas grew back. So as well as charting in the top 10 in the US, Eyes Without a Face charted in the top 10 in Germany, New Zealand and Canada, as well as in the top 20 in another six countries, including the UK, where it reached number 18. The final two singles from the album, Flesh for Fantasy and Catch My Fall, were released on the 13th of September and the 7th of November 1984 respectively, but charted progressively worse. It's not hard to see why either. Flesh for Fantasy is a bit of a lacklustre dance song, whereas Catch My Fall is a little less minimal, but does include horribly dated, achingly 80s sax in the choruses. Catch 
Idol released Whiplash Smile on the 20th of October 1986, which sold well, but received generally mixed reviews from critics. Commercially, the album noted a success similar to his previous album. It peaked at number 6 on the Billboard 200, and in the United Kingdom it reached number 8, and also peaked inside the top 10 in many other countries such as Australia, Canada, Germany, New Zealand and Switzerland selling more than 2 million copies worldwide. The album included the hits To Be A Lover, Don't Need A Gun and Sweet Sixteen. To Be A Lover is an electronically based driven cover of a soul song written by William Bell and Booker T. Jones and performed by Bell. The original song is called I Forgot To Be Your Lover and charted in 1968. The original song has been sampled by Ludacris, Jaheim and Dilated People since, and Lee Scratch Perry has produced two cover versions of the song, one by Shenley Duffus and the Soul Avengers in 1972, and another by George Faith, who recorded an up-tempo reggae version. Idol's cover charted in the top seven in each of the four territories it was released in, Australia, Canada, the US and New Zealand. Later in 1986, Don't Need a Gun was released and is a clear message against gun use. The single didn't do nearly as well as its predecessor, most likely due to its incredibly non-commercial length, clocking in as it does at 6 minutes and 15 seconds. It also doesn't go many places in this gargantuan running time. I just need However, the next single, Sweet 16, charted in the top 20 in 12 countries. The song is a stripped-back, almost country-sounding love song, which Idol describes in his autobiography as a heartfelt lament. He wrote Sweet 16 while making the Rebel Yell album, after he watched an episode of Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of, that was based around the building of Coral Castle in Florida. The story goes that a Latvian emigrant, Edward Leedskalnin, single-handedly built the Coral Castle. In Latvia, Leedskalnin was set to marry Agnes Skuvst, but she broke the engagement and Leedskalnin decided to emigrate to America. He built the Coral Castle there in dedication to Skuvst, who he often referred to as his Sweet Sixteen. Idle added that while the castle was Leedskalnin's choral memorial to his former love, Sweet Sixteen was Idle's memorial to Lister. It's worth taking a few minutes here to explain about the legend of Coral Castle in a bit more depth. In Search Of has investigated the mystery of many ancient monuments the Pyramids, Stonehenge, and Easter Island. A solution to these puzzles may be concealed in Florida's Coral Castle. This monumental structure was created by one man with his bare hands in the 20th century. 
What strange forces created this castle of secrets? Located in Miami-Dade County, Florida, between the cities of Homestead and Leisure City, the structure is made up of limestone blocks, each weighing several tonnes. It's claimed that Leeskilnin used magnetism or supernatural abilities to move and carve these stones. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. The rumour was largely stoked by Leedskillnin himself, who refused to allow anyone to watch him work over the 28 years he created the structure. The magnetism part is further embellished by the fact that Leedskillnin claims that on arrival in America, he was suffering with an apparently terminal case of tuberculosis, but spontaneously healed, stating that magnets had had some effect on the disease. A few teenagers claimed to have witnessed his work reporting that he caused the blocks of coral to move like hydrogen balloons. The only advanced tool that Leedskillnin spoke of using was something he called a perpetual motion holder. What this is, we're not quite sure, but the idea of a perpetual motion machine, one that can work indefinitely with no power source, is literally physically impossible. The original castle was built in Florida City in 1923, but in 1936, Leedskillnin moved both himself and the castle to its current position. This move took him three years. He continued to work on the castle until his death in 1951, excavating new blocks from a quarry right next to the new site of the castle. The grounds of Coral Castle consists of 1,000 tonnes of stone in the form of eight-foot-high walls, carvings, an accurate sundial, a polar telescope, an obelisk, a barbecue, a water well, a fountain, celestial stars and planets, and numerous pieces of furniture, including a heart-shaped table, a table in the shape of Florida, 25 rocking chairs, chairs resembling crescent moons, a bathtub, beds and a throne, as well as a two-storey castle tower that served as his living quarters. The stones are fastened together without mortar and set on top of each other using their weight to keep them together. The craftsmanship detail is so fine and the stones are connected with such precision that no light passes through the joints. The eight-foot-tall vertical stones that make up the perimeter wall have a uniform height and over the decades, the stones have not shifted. Coral Castle's website states that if anyone ever questioned Ed about how he moved the blocks, he would only reply that he understood the laws of weight and leverage well. He also stated that he had discovered the secrets of the ancient pyramids. With few exceptions, the objects are made from single pieces of stone that weigh on average 14 tonnes each. The largest stone weighs 27 tonnes, and the tallest are two monoliths standing at 25 feet each. An 8-foot tall, 8.2-tonne revolving gate is one of the most famous structures of the castle. It's carved so that it fits within a quarter inch of the walls, and was said to be so well balanced that a child could open it with the push of a finger. The mystery of the gate's perfectly balanced axis and the ease with which it's revolved lasted for decades until it stopped working in 1986. 
In order to remove it, six men and a 45-tonne crane were used. Once it had been removed, the engineers discovered that Lidskalnin had centred and balanced it by drilling a hole from top to bottom, through which he inserted a metal shaft. The rock rested on an old truck bearing, and it was the rusting out of this bearing that resulted in the gate's failure to revolve. Complete with new bearings and shaft, it was set back into place on the 23rd of July in 1986. It failed again in 2005 and was again repaired. However, it does not rotate with the same ease it once did. Leedskulnin lived and worked at the castle for his whole life and conducted tours, asking for donations of 25 cents, but allowed people to look around for free if they said they had no money. He never told anyone who asked him how he made the castle, he would simply answer, it's not difficult if you know how. When Leedskulnin became ill in November 1951, he put a sign on the front gate saying, going to the hospital, and took the bus to Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. He suffered a stroke at one point, either before he left for the hospital or at the hospital itself, and died 28 days later of a kidney infection at the age of 64. While the property was being investigated after his death, $3,500, the equivalent to $34,500 or £27,500 in today's money, was found among his personal belongings, which he had made from conducting tours, selling pamphlets about various subjects including magnetic currents, and the sale of a portion of his 10-acre property for the construction of US Route 1. As he had no will, the castle became the property of his closest living relative in America, a nephew from Michigan named Harry. It now belongs to Coral Castle Inc. and was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1984. Back to the subject at hand. In 1987, the same year Whiplash Smile was released, Stevens collaborated with Harold Faltermeyer on Memories and the Top Gun Anthem for the Top Gun soundtrack. Faltermeyer had been introduced to Stevens when he had been brought in to play keys on Whiplash Smile. Faltermeyer had been working on the soundtrack to the film Fletch in the same studio as Idle and Stevens. One day Idle passed by the control room on a break and opened the door for a listen. He liked the melody Faltermeyer was playing and suggested it would be good for Top Gun. Initially surprised by the suggestion, Faltermeyer soon warmed to the idea and asked Stevens to play guitar on the track. Stevens was shown a clip of the film and agreed to play on the track because he felt the film would be a hit. Top Gun Anthem won a Best Pop Instrumental Performance Grammy at the 1987 awards. After this success, the partnership between Stevens and Idol fell apart, and besides playing an acoustic show for K-Rock in 1993, the pair didn't tour again until early 1999. Stevens became a successful session musician and played on Michael Jackson's album Bad, Robert Palmer's Don't Explain, Sebastian Bach's Give Em Hell, and played in Vince Neil's band on the album Exposed and its subsequent tour, among many others. He released his first solo album, Atomic Playboys, in 1989 and followed it up in 1999 with Flamenco Agogo. After the release of Whiplash Smile, Idol and Lister moved from New York to Los Angeles where she became pregnant with a son, Willem Wolfe Broad, who was born on the 15th of June 1988. However, Idol started seeing Linda Mathis, 13 years his junior, 
At the age of 19, Mathis became pregnant and moved in with her mother to have her child, a girl named Bonnie Blue Broad, born on the 21st of August 1989. Film director Oliver Stone had chosen Idol for a major role in his biopic of The Doors, but Idol was involved in a serious motorcycle accident which nearly cost him a leg on the 6th of February 1990. He was hit by a car in Hollywood after riding through a stop sign while returning home from the studio one night. Let's go back to the accident. Has it, has it changed the way you feel about things? I mean, I know it was a, it was a particularly nasty scrape and, you know, it, it could have been worse than it was, obviously. Have you changed your life because of it in any way? Well, it doesn't look like it, does it? No, it doesn't look like it, but I'm asking <laughs> you whether it has or not. Uh... I don't know, not really. I mean, uh, thank God I had a life that I was already enjoying to uh, get better for. Now, I, I read one quote that your mum said that you are now, uh, as a result of it, you're now a born-again Christian. Yeah, it was, I think you heard her wrong. It, it, was, it wasn't born again, it was, I was into porn again. You're <laughs> <laughs> well, reading Hustler! But only Christian porn, I should imagine. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I should have that. Due to a steel rod having to be placed in his leg, Idol's role was reduced to a smaller part, where he played Jim Morrison's drinking pal, Cat. Yeah, morning. Pour me my breakfast, Dolores. Yeah, what's the matter with Jimbo? Can't handle that, He's pussy whip, man. Hey, yeah. Eat this, man. We got one last place to go. Ray's getting married this morning, remember? Live, she cried. Oh, I can't eat that, it'll make me sick. Give me a uh, dose equis, will you, Dolores? And uh, Ramos Stiz. And what happened to you last night? You bet me a grand you're gonna walk on the ledge of the 9,000 building after the gate. Let's go right now. Complaining about going home to a sanctuary. We're gonna make a fucking movie. <laughs> you bet me a thousand bucks, man. Give him a double. A triple. Imagine me and Morrison in the movie together. Yeah. Two powerful, two Irish, two fisted fucking drinking guys in the same movie together. Yeah, man, I'll direct the shit out of it. Dennis Hopper can do it. I can do it. Well, all three directed. A real road movie, though, in black and white. We'll call it Zero. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? He had also been James Cameron's first choice for the role of the villainous T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Robert Patrick was recast in the role, and on a personal note, it's hard to think of Idol giving a better performance. Are you the legal guardian of John Connor? That's right, officer. What's he done now? Could I speak with him, please? Could if you he were here. He took off on his bike this morning so he could be anywhere. Do you have a photograph of John? Yeah, sure, hold on. You gonna tell me what this is about? I just need to ask him a few questions. He's a good looking boy. Do you mind if I keep this picture? No, go on. There was a guy here this morning looking for him too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. Has that got something to do with this? No. I wouldn't worry about him. Thanks for your cooperation. Another role he missed out on due to the accident was that of the villain Jacob Kell in Highlander Endgame. In the event, Bruce Payne was cast. So here we are, both immortal. Missed the signs, didn't we? 
But we were both so new at the game. Connor. What a glorious sight. Just look, Connor. Look back at the endless travesties of your life and you'll see me always there waiting in the shadows. When friends and lovers are wiped from your sight, I'm there. When those you cherish die abruptly and for no reason, I'm there for you. And when your cellmates in their so-called sanctuary are left twitching like headless chickens, Guess who? Idol's fourth album, Charmed Life, was released in May 1990 and sold really well in Europe, New Zealand and Canada where it charted inside the top six in six countries. In the US, UK and Australia, it failed to break into the top ten. The lead single, Cradle of Love, was the biggest hit for Idol in the US, where it went to number two after being released on the 5th of May 1990, beaten only by Mariah Carey's Vision of Love. However, again, it stalled at number 34 in the UK. Since Idol was unable to walk at the time after his motorcycle accident, he only appears in the video from the waist up. The video, directed by David Fincher, features footage of Idol singing in large picture frames throughout an apartment while Betsy Lynn George plays a teenager who tries seducing a modest and mild-mannered businessman played by Josh Townsend Zellner. The video makes use of clips from the film The Adventures of Ford Fairlane as the song appears on the film's soundtrack. The video was a huge hit and was played on heavy rotation on MTV. Idol and George recreated the opening of the video for the 1991 Grammys, where it was nominated for Best Male Video and Best Special Effects, and won the award for Best Video from a Film. The song also earned Idol his only Brit Award nomination for Best British Video and a third Grammy nomination for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance after Rebel Yell and To Be A Lover. The second single was a rocked-up cover of The Doors' L.A. Woman, with a video also directed by Fincher, who was a prolific music video director, and would later go on to have massive success with feature films including Alien 3, Seven, Fight Club and many, many more. When I was a boy, Daddy told me grow tall Prodigal Blues was the third and final single to be released from Whiplash Smile, reaching number 47 in the UK singles chart and number 35 in the US mainstream rock chart. In 1993, Idol took his biggest stylistic change since going solo with the release of the experimental concept album Cyberpunk, which was inspired by his interest in technology and was his first attempt to use computers in the creation of his music. The album was recorded using Studio Vision and Pro Tools in a home studio using a Macintosh computer with guitarist Mark Younger-Smith and producer Robin Hancock. Idol based the album on the cyberdelic subculture of the late 1980s and 90s. 
a fusion of cyberculture and the psychedelic subcultures that included multimedia art styles, as well as ushering in the birth of psychedelic trance raves with their laser light shows and ubiquitous use of club drugs. Where a man cannot be free of all the evils in this town. Heavily experimental in its style, Cyberpunk was an attempt to take control of the creative process in the production of his albums, while simultaneously introducing Idol's fans and other musicians to the opportunities presented by digital media. The idea for the album came about while he recovered from his motorcycle accident in 1990. During an interview by Roderick Legs McNeil, the man who coined the term punk in the American music press, McNeil noticed the electronic muscle stimulator on Idol leg and referred to him as a cyberpunk. This led to Idol taking a serious interest in the work of William Gibson, Neil Stevenson and Robert Anton Wilson among others. Mark Younger Smith told Julie Romandetta, writing for the Boston Herald in 1993, Billy and I were both really influenced by Neuromancer. We both loved the ideas and the technology. Billy really wanted to create something that would parallel that work. At approximately the same time, Idol began to work with Trevor Rabin to create his music, having parted ways with Keith Forsey. Rabin introduced Idol to his home studio, which was centralised around a Macintosh computer and music software. The ability to personally produce music from his home, rather than as a professional studio, appealed to Idol's do-it-yourself ethic. He felt that working through a team of producers and sound engineers cut into his personal vision for previous albums and was interested in being more directly in control of his future work. Idol asked his producer Robin Hancock to educate himself and Younger Smith on the use of software for musical production. Speaking to Entertainment Weekly's Tim Apello in 1993, Idol said, I threw off the shackles of the past. I was looking for a way to break the stalemate I'd gotten into, which was boring me to death, really. With his increasing exposure to technology and science fiction, Idol decided to base his upcoming album on the cyberpunk genre and quickly set about educating himself in psychedelic counterculture. Idol saw the convergence of affordable technology with the music industry and anticipated its impact on a new era for DIY punk music. It's 1993, Idol said during the New York Times interview. I'd better wake up and be part of it. I'm sitting here, a 1977 punk, watching Courtney Love talk about punk, watching Nirvana talk about punk, and this is my reply. Idol asked Gareth Branwyn permission to base the intro track on his 1992 essay, Is There a Cyberpunk Movement? He also read Branwyn's Beyond Cyberpunk hypercard stack, a collection of essays based on fanzines, political tracts, conspiracy theories, and which referred to itself as a do-it-yourself guide to the future. Idol proceeded to consult with various writers familiar with computer-related magazines, such as Mondo 2000 and Boing Boing, and hosted a cyber meeting, essentially an early form of video conference calling, attended by the likes of Timothy Leary, famed counterculture guru Jamie Levy, author of books published on disc under the electronic Hollywood imprint, Are You Serious, co-founder of Mondo 2000, and Brett Leonard, director of The Lawnmower Man. Asked by Idol about how he could become further involved in cyberculture, Branwyn and Mark Frauenfelder advised him to investigate the well one of the oldest online communities. Idol did so, 
discussing the album project online with Well users, and creating a personal email account which he released on printed advertisements for the upcoming album so that fans could communicate with him. Idle also made occasional postings to alt.cyberpunk, a Usenet newsgroup. Later, in an interview for MTV News promoting the album, Idle expressed excitement over the medium, saying, This means I can be in touch with millions of people, but on my own terms. Excited by the DIY aspects of the production process, Idle took just 10 months to record the entire album. He also got the sense that the computer was itself an instrument, and that the performer's style was also presented by the technology. Its versatility also allowed him to switch roles with Mark Younger-Smith and Robin Hancock, allowing each to experiment with their different talents and blurring the lines of their specialised roles, a production process he excitedly compared to that of being in a garage band. Together, the trio comprised what Idol considered to be the core production group, although a number of artists contributed to various tracks, in particular drummer Tal Bergman and bassist Doug Wimbish, with Wimbish recording his work from a studio in New York City and sent to Los Angeles to be added to the tracks. The album features a cyberpunk-style narrative, as well as synthesised vocals and industrial influences. Keyboards were also used to drive much of the music through the album. When asked why he was pursuing such a shift in his musical style by adopting electronic music, Idol responded that he had attempted to incorporate technology in his older work, but found the equipment of the late 70s and early 80s too limiting and gave up. With the computers of the 90s, Idol finally felt that the technology was able to quickly and easily make changes as he saw fit. He came to expound this belief in the future importance for the music industry and quoted Branwyn referring to the computer as the new cool tool. However, he rejected the idea of referring to the music as computerised on the grounds that nothing was done for the album that couldn't have been done with standard recording equipment and that the computer had simply sped up and simplified the creative process. Idle later agreed with an interviewer who commented that the album's digital production and themes were ahead of their time. Idle made enthusiastic speculations about the future of computers throughout the promotion of cyberpunk. You're using very sort of extreme and raw ideas, but with very high level technology. It's probably what's going to be happening, or in fact, it is what's happening now, because that's how we made this album cyberpunk. He added in a 2010 interview with the Dallas Observer that he was very interested in the power of the internet and that cyberpunk was really about what effects the internet would have on us. Some of the predictions Idol made for the future of the internet, computers and musicians were incredibly prescient. He claimed it would allow for cheap and efficient recording from home, that musicians could record their music and send it to producers and fellow band members from great distances, perhaps even while on tour, and that musicians would be able to directly communicate with their fans and critics. He also hoped that the rapid ability to do whatever he desired with the production would allow raw forms of rock music to remain relevant after the grunge movement swept America in the early 90s. The computer can do anything. If you want the music backwards, it can be backwards in a snap. This is, in a way, my sort of answer to grunge. I know there's a way of using this modern technology to bring a lot of rawness back. Back on the 24th of September 1992, Idol took part in the Jean-Paul Gaultier in LA fashion benefit for AIDS research at the Shrine Auditorium. He modelled a leather jacket and pants covered in black sunglasses to the as-yet-unreleased song Neuromancer. 
This coincided with Idol's decision to change his fashion style to match the cyberpunk aesthetic of the album. Idol changed his hair to dreadlocks and wore sleek, futuristic clothing by New York fashion designer Stephen Sprouse. In a photo shoot published in Details in July 1993, highlighting his new cyberpunk aesthetic, Idol modelled in a distressed velvet jacket and matching trousers designed by Paul Smith. In the background, Idol stood amongst computers and chaotically strewn cables, representing his home studio. Idol wore the same suit during the Shock to the System music video. Special editions of the cyberpunk album were issued with a floppy disk, an industry first, which contained a screensaver, album clip art, sample sound bites, a biography by Mark Fraunfelder, lyrics and a cyberculture bibliography by Gareth Branwyn. It was also one of the first albums which listed the email address of the artist in its booklet, idle at well.sf.ca.us, now inactive. I checked. Plans were considered by EMI Chrysalis to re-release the album the following autumn with an updated CD-ROM if the album was successful. As CD-ROMs were prohibitively expensive at the time of production, this was anticipated as a potential benchmark event for the music industry. However, this never came to be due to the financial failure of the album. It didn't chart as well in the US as in other territories, and only one of the three singles released made any impression on any chart worldwide. The technological aspect was carried over into the album's art design. Using Adobe Photoshop, the cover art itself was the first image created following the initial five minutes of editing on Idol's personal computer at his home. The videos from the album's single used something Idol called Blendo cinematography based on the visuals used in the film The Lawnmower Man, though it's arguable that the video for Shock to the System is more representative of David Cronenberg's body horror style, along with visuals straight from the Terminator films. The beginning of the recording sessions coincided with the onset of the 1992 Los Angeles riots, which is clearly an inspiration for the video for Shock to the System. We just installed a computer in my room, and there was a window above it overlooking the whole city, and there was a fire raging. There was smoke just pouring across the whole of LA. It was LA burning, and so I just straight quickly wrote the lyrics and sang them three times. What you're hearing on the single Shock to the System is my news reportage of what I'm seeing, Idle recalled for a German broadcast. We started the album with a riot, so that's really rock and roll. A press pack was distributed to the media prior to the album's release. It included a copy of the Billy Idol Cyberpunk custom-stickered 3.5-inch floppy disk, which was housed in a multicoloured folder with artist and title logo on the front and contact information on the back. The pack included a five-page version of the biography on the diskette, just in case any of the journalists didn't have the equipment to operate the floppy disk. The press release read, As we get set to address a new millennium, science and technology are becoming the new weapons of change, and who better to arm you for the future battle than Billy Idol? As part of the press junkets promoting the album, Idol reportedly insisted attending journalists brush up on their cyberpunk fiction. 
However, what this inadvertently revealed was the title was not entirely as familiar with the genre as he had proclaimed. William Gibson reported in an interview, a London journalist told me when Billy did his cyberpunk press junket over there, he made it a condition of getting an interview with him that every journalist had to have read Neuromancer. Anyway, they all did, but when they met with Billy, the first thing that became really apparent was that Billy hadn't read it. So they called him on it, and he said he didn't need to, he just absorbed it through a kind of osmosis. The first two singles were released before the album. Heroin, an up-tempo dance version of the Velvet Underground song of the same name, was released on the 4th of May 1993 and peaked at number 16 on the Hot Dance Club play chart. Shock to the System was released on the 8th of June and peaked at number 7 on the Hot Mainstream Rock Tracks chart, number 23 on the Hot Modern Rock Tracks chart and number 5 on the Bubbling Under Hot 100 Singles chart, but performed worse in Europe where the best charting it managed was number 17 in Italy. The music video for Shock to the System is set in a dystopian future controlled by cybercops. It depicts an individual recording the cybercops beating a man, only to be noticed and attacked himself. His camera is destroyed and he is left unconscious on the ground, as the cybercops set about trying to put down a riot elsewhere in the city. Alone, his camera equipment lands on him, is absorbed into his body, and he morphs into a cyborg joining the riot, leading the rebels to victory. Idol explained that he was trying to capture the political and economic conflict that had created the LA riots, and that the camcorder, as displayed in the witnessing of the Rodney King beating, was a potent way of conveying ideas, and an important metaphor for technology used in rebellion. The makeup effects were achieved through stop motion, with Idol moving in slow stages during points of the filming. Stan Winston, who had previously worked on the Terminator series and Jurassic Park, supervised and created the special effects for the video, which was nominated for Best Special Effects in a Video and Best Editing in a Video at the 1993 MTV Video Music Awards, losing both times to Peter Gabriel's video for Steam. Upon release on the 28th of June 1993, the album did not fare well failing to make the top 20 in the US, where it debuted at number 48 on the Billboard 200, and plummeted to 192 in just seven weeks before falling off the chart completely. The album saw slightly better chart placings in Europe, where it peaked at number 20 in the UK, number 5 in Austria, number 11 in Sweden, and number 15 in Switzerland. Cyberpunk was mostly received negatively by critics, with some stating that the album was pretentious and meandering. They said Idol sounded like a man desperate to keep up with current trends. Ira Robbins of Newsday was sceptical of Idol's assertion that he'd tried using technology on his earlier music. He said, it's hardly obvious in his work. He added that cyberpunk was the sound of science gone too far. The ideology of futurism Idol adopted was panned by Robbins, while he said of the music itself, for the most part, other than keyboards that add a pervasive nod to the jittering beat of techno rave music, Cyberpunk sounds pretty much like every other Idol album. Manuela Sparza of the Daily Cougar wrote a more mixed review, praising some elements such as the track Shangri-La, 
the use of sound space echo effects and Idol's talent as a singer. However, Esparza felt that Idol attempted the same techniques across too many songs and referred to the lyrics as just barely making more sense than a monkey pounding away on a typewriter. Noting Idol's attempts to infuse cyberpunk with themes of social change, Paul Jean Giordano of the Daily Collision judged the album to be a repetitive and poorly developed attempt to create a socially relevant album. There is a positive message to be found in cyberpunk, he wrote. The problem is that techno plus early 80s equals a big yawn, especially when the lyrics of the company are annoyingly repetitive. Entertainment Weekly presented a favourable review of the album, giving it a B plus rating, stating, This is old-fashioned glam pop, as dumb and occasionally glorious as it gets. Two months later, Entertainment Weekly included Idol on a list of surprise losers, following the album's ranking of number 48 on the Billboard charts. The criticism didn't just come from the professional critical fraternity either. As ever, even in the years of the very early internet, the denizens of the online cyberpunk community weighed in, accusing Idol of appropriating cyberculture, filling up his email address with antagonistic messages, accusing him of being a naive, tech-illiterate poser. He defended himself by admitting he was still learning about computers, but compared it to the early punk ethic of simply trying your best as a musician, even if you have difficulty. He also pointed out that William Gibson was computer illiterate when he wrote Neuromancer. I don't know much about computers, but I have the desire to learn, and I have a computer and a modem, so I go for it. Banging my head sometimes, but continuing on. He was also criticised for co-opting the term cyberpunk for the album's title, as the online community said he had no claim to a title which belonged to the entire movement. Idol responded that he was not approaching the movement with a sense of entitlement. I ain't no rock star, I'm an eager student, Idol wrote on a post to The Well. Regarding his use of the term cyberpunk, Idol refuted claims that he had ever called himself one, and instead used the name as an ode to the subculture. I was revved up by the DIY energy of Gibson and the high-tech underground. Branwyn, Fraudenfelder and some others including Penn Gillette, then a columnist for the PC Computing magazine, came to Idol's defence, stating that he was simply a fan of computer culture and using it to influence his art. At the end of the day, this wasn't the only subculture to be adopted by mainstream society and it certainly wasn't and won't be the last. One of the founders of the cyberpunk culture and an author Idol had studied, William Gibson, said in a 1994 interview that he did not approve of the way the term cyberpunk was being increasingly commercialised by popular culture. He also said in another interview that to understand cyberpunk as a movement was something of a joke as wonderfully demonstrated not too long ago by Billy Idol's cyberpunk album. Despite his negative comments, Gibson was bemused rather than angered by Idol's creation stating that he'd tried to withhold judgement before hearing the album. He eventually did, and said, I just don't get what he's on about, I don't see the connection. I had lunch with Billy years ago in Hollywood, and I thought he was a very likeable guy. He had a sense of humour about what he was doing that's not apparent in the product he puts out. If I run into him again, we can have a good laugh about what he's doing now. Do you want to be hypnotised?
Two more singles were released from the album. Adam in Chains is a six and a half minute song split into two halves, the first featuring a voice coaxing the listener through a hypnotic exercise, encouraging them towards a state of relaxation. The remainder of the song consists of Idol singing in a melodious slow tempo. For its release as a single in the UK and Europe, a radio edit of the track was created by Hancock. It's on a spot. Doesn't matter where. Just fix your eyes on one spot. To a music video for the song, directed by Julian Temple, depicts Idol bound in a chair with a chip inserted into his neck as he is monitored by scientists. He struggles before being hypnotised and is then inserted into a virtual reality simulator. There, he is treated to an ethereal water fantasy. Idol eventually rejects the fantasy, which is consumed in flames as, in the real world, his body violently convulses. The scientists end the experiment and Idol is brought back into reality, only to fall unconscious. A 1993 issue of Musician described the song as New Age Lull. Robert Criscow, in his review of Cyberpunk, commented, Adam in Chains, which after a long-spoken intro devolves into what a vulgarian might take for his latest Love Gone Bad rant, is in fact a prayer for the Tomorrow People and Power Junkies. AXS.com later featured the song as one of Idol's five most underrated songs in a retrospective of Idol's career. Writer Kareem Gant felt the song was a gem from a subpar album and commented, It's a weird song for sure, but it's a single that you won't be able to pull from once you hear it. Adam in Chains charted at number 5 in France and 35 in Poland, but didn't trouble the charts anywhere else in the world upon its release in September 1993. Wasteland was released in January 1994 and failed to chart anywhere. On the 20th of September 1993, during the English leg of Idol's No Religion tour, the late 70s Generation X lineup reformed for a one off performance at the Astoria in London. Later in 1994, Idol collapsed outside a Los Angeles nightclub due to an overdose of GHB, a legal drug at the time mainly used by weightlifters. After the incident, Idol decided that his children would never forgive him for dying of a drug overdose, and he began to focus more on fatherhood. He has never admitted that he is totally off drugs, just that he has his habit under control. The same year, Idle and Stevens contributed a song called Speed to the soundtrack of the blockbuster of the same name, starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. Idle didn't release another album until 2005 due to financial and legal problems with his record label. In the time between, he began concentrating on a career in acting. In 1996, he appeared in a live version of The Who's Quadrophenia and made a cameo appearance as himself in the 1998 film The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler, in which he played a pivotal role in the plot. The film also featured White Wedding on its soundtrack. She comes over to tell me how she feels, and Linda answers the door wearing nothing but my Van Halen t-shirt. No way. I don't know what to do. She's getting married and he's going to ruin her life. Yeah. Glenn doesn't deserve her. All he cares about are possessions. Fancy cars, CD players. Even women are possessions to him. Yeah. See, Billy Idol gets it. I don't know why she doesn't get it. Oh, I hope you find her. You guys will not believe this. 
Some creeping coach who thinks he's Don Johnson just asked me to be part of the Mile High Club. He said I was grade A, top choice meat. Is he right in here? Yeah. What's the Mile High Club? Mile High guy is Glenn. They're on this plane. No way! You guys gotta help me. Right! Yeah! Good afternoon, everyone. We're flying at 26,000 feet, moving up to 30,000 feet, and we got clear skies all the way to Las Vegas. And right now, we're bringing you some in-flight entertainment. One of our first-class passengers would like to sing you a song inspired by one of our coach passengers. And since we let our first-class passengers do pretty much whatever they want, here he is. Get out of my way, Billy. You're gonna get hurt. Oh, yeah? Don't you talk to Billy Idol that way. So let me do the dishes in our kitchen sink. Put you to bed when you've had too much to drink. Oh, I could be the man who grows old. song you know i'm gonna tell this record company guys about you mind if i give her a kiss first oh yeah do what you gotta do <laughs> In 2000, Idol was invited to be a guest vocalist on Tony Iommi's album, Iommi, where he contributed the song Into the Night, which he co-wrote. There's no shelter tonight, no escape from 
He also voiced the role of Odin, a mysterious alien character in the animated fantasy film Heavy Metal 2000, as well as writing the song Buried Alive for the soundtrack. VH1 aired Billy Idol behind the music on the 16th of April 2001, and three days later Idol and Stevens took part in a VH1 storytellers show. The reunited duo set out to play a series of acoustic storytellers shows before recording the VH1 special. A Greatest Hit CD was also issued in 2001, which included a cover of Simple Minds Don't You Forget About Me and a live acoustic version of Rebel Yell. The album sold one million copies in the United States alone, providing Idol with a big comeback. You got license for love And if it expires Pray hell from above We go in a midnight hour in the years following the release of Cyberpunk, musicians who had previously worked with Idol were asked to comment on the failure of the album. Though sympathetic to his former bandmate, Tony James told Head Cleaner magazine in 1998, Billy is always cool, but he does Billy Idol rebel yelling the best. I felt Cyberpunk was a wrong turn for him. He has his sound. Stay great as you are, Bill. In 2001, Steve Stevens was asked if Idol's declining popularity and the failure of cyberpunk was related to their split. He rejected the idea, saying, I think the cyberpunk record people didn't get. I think I would be doing Billy and his fans a great disservice if I said that he needed me for his popularity. Idol briefly responded once more to the negative reception the album received on two occasions. In 1996 he gave an interview for his website in which he was asked if he'd pursue the style of cyberpunk for a future album. He answered the question by first explaining his interpretation of the failure of the album. The thing about cyberpunk is that it was supposed to be like a homemade record, much like these rap bands are doing, all made really on home equipment. But it was very hard to make people understand that I was sort of making an alternative record. He then stated that he would not be pursuing the same style with any future album. In a 2005 interview on VH1.com, Idol simply stated, the idea that I was trying to do an overground underground record just wasn't understood at the time. While on tour in 2010, Idol was asked if he intended to perform music from the cyberpunk album. While not distancing himself from the production, Idol stated he had no intentions of doing so immediately, pointing out that he did wish to perform a mixture of new and older works, and would perhaps perform the music in future. He intended to base his tour on more guitar music, and pointed out that cyberpunk's keyboard-driven music was not going to be featured. Idol has since performed Shot to the System in subsequent live performances. In the devil's playground with an idle mind. 
independent UK label Sanctuary Records eventually lured Idol out of his hiatus and he formed a new band, reuniting with Steve Stevens and producer Keith Forsey. The album Devil's Playground was released on the 22nd of March 2005 and was recorded with the entire band playing in one room, rather than each person playing their part separately, which gives the songs a gritty live sound similar to Idol's earlier work and right back to his punk days. Though it also seems to have a certain amount of grunge influence, with the opening track Super Overdrive sounding something like a cross between Generation X, Foo Fighters and Soundgarden. Idol and the band played mainly festival sets during 05 and 06 to promote the album. At one of these festivals, the Voodoo Musical Experience in New Orleans, Stevens broke his ulna while taking a few bags into his hotel and had to perform the rest of the tour in a two-piece removable cast. Devil's Playground reached number 21 in Canada, number 46 on the Billboard 200, 78 in the UK and charted between 32 and 105 across the rest of Europe. Scream was the only single released from the album and charted in the US rock charts at number 26 and number 54 in Germany. There's no doubt that reverting to his roots was a tonic to his career, despite the middling performance of both the album and the single. In 2006, Idol guested on his keyboardist Derek Sherinan's solo album Blood and the Snake, covering the 1970 Mungo Jerry hit In the Summertime. A video was made featuring Idol and guitarist Slash. Later that year, Idol released Happy Holidays, an album of classic Christmas songs sung largely in a traditional crooning style. All the white Christmas. It's a novelty album, and frankly, if you've seen any of the videos, they kind of fall on the wrong side of ironic, like he's almost embarrassed to be doing it. One that can be missed, it's safe to say. On the 24th of June 2008, Idol released the greatest hits album, The Very Best of Billy Idol, Idolize Yourself. The album featured two previously unreleased tracks, John Wayne and New Future Weapon. The third track, Fractured, was available for download on iTunes, and he embarked on a worldwide tour co-headlining with Def Leppard. In 2009, Idol performed at the Congress Theatre Chicago for the US television series Soundstage. This performance was recorded and then released on DVD and Blu-ray as In Super Overdrive Live on the 17th of November 2009. Idol's eighth studio album, Kings and Queens of the Underground, was released on the 17th of October 2014. While recording the album between 2010 and 2014, he worked with producer Trevor Horn, Horn's former Buggles and Yes bandmate Jeff Downs, and Greg Kirsten. The album debuted at number 34 on the Billboard 200 Albums chart, which was Idol's highest album debut ever. 
The album also peaked at number 9 on the Billboard Top Rock Albums chart for the week of the 8th of November. Videos were released for the singles Can't Break Me Down and Save Me Now, neither of which charted. On the 30th of October 2018, former Generation X members Idol and Tony James joined with Steve Jones and Paul Cook, former members of another first wave English punk rock band The Sex Pistols, to perform a free gig at the Roxy in Hollywood under the name Generation Sex, playing a combined set of material from the two former bands. In late February 2020, Idol starred in a public service campaign entitled Billy Never Idols, intended to fight the unnecessary idling of automobile engines in New York City to reduce air pollution. He teamed with New York Mayor Bill de Blasio to open the campaign, in which he says, if you're not driving, shut your damn engine off, another strong advice. Hey New York, Billy Idol here, rock star and environmentalist. If you're not driving, shut your damn engine off. Idling is polluting. I mean, bollocks, are you trying to choke us all? This city has some of the most hard-working, creative and awesome people. Don't clog our lungs with your car fumes. Billy never idles, so why should you? Shut it off! Learn more at billyneveridles.nyc Some 44 years after he formed Generation X, Billy Idol remains a giant star in the rock firmament, a hell-raising rebel who's lived life to the full, sometimes fuller than life would allow. But he is also William Michael Albert Broad, a working-class kid from the suburbs of London. In his own words, a dreamer with his nose forever in a book, cursed with feeling too much, dreaming too big, and suffering slights too deeply. You've come a long way since the days of Generation X and the only uh, hangover from those days would appear to be your uh, tough image. Is that really you? Yeah, I'm not really a tough person in the sense of being violent or aggressive physically. <laughs> but I'm uh, kind of tough about my attitude because that's the only thing that kind of keeps you going in, in society is if you have your attitude together and you know what you think and you're confident about what you think and you can make it work because otherwise people just walk all over you, especially uh, in an industry that cares the least about music, care about money making, about music, but I care about music. Keep that together, right? You have to have a pretty heavy attitude. And people wonder why I'm not standing there shaking my fist. It's because, yeah, you know, the only way to get through to make ourselves worth it is if we state an opinion. He adds in his autobiography, life gave me a golden key when I fell in love with rock and roll music thanks to the music in my Irish mum's blood, and a whole new world opened up to me. With this world came every opportunity and every temptation under the sun, around the clock excess. I am hopelessly divided between the dark and the good, the rebel and the saint, the sex maniac and the monk, the poet and the priest, the demagogue and the populist. Over the years, Idol has proved himself a survivor with a fighter's resolve. It is this that will, I'm sure, see him through many more years of new material and touring. After all, it's been six years since his last album. Surely we're due one soon. Well, funnily enough, I spoke to Billy Idol last night and we had a long talk about Generation X. 
it was amazing actually talking to him last night really touched my heart somehow it was as if he'd never gone away we talked about whether we'd maybe play some more generation x gigs in the future who knows we both said it was one of the greatest moments in our life so we shall see it's the greatest job in the world being in a rock and roll band can recommend it to anyone for listening to this episode of band biographies if you enjoyed it please don't forget to leave a five-star review on apple podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts please do reach out on twitter at band biogs instagram at band biographies search on facebook for band biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com see you next time It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.